Hello, everybody. I haven't started recording yet, but welcome to tonight's The Brown Bag. I'm going over CCNA DC stuff. I see some familiar names. Hello, Ahmad. And Brett's here also. They're waving, I can tell. <clears throat> In just a sec, we will get started. Can you see my screen? Joel, you got it? Yep. Perfect. All right, and now I'm going to hit record. Hello, everybody, and welcome to tonight's V Brown Bag US. It is Wednesday, April 6th, 7.32 Central Standard Time. Uh, tonight, we've got Joel here joining us to talk about, well, Joel, why don't you tell us what we're talking about? Well, we are talking about storage networking for our CCNE data center, uh, test 64916. Um, I know most people working on the CCNA track have probably come from the network side of the house. I actually came from systems and storage, so I'll probably have a little different viewpoint than most of you guys preparing for this test, and hopefully that'll be a helpful thing, not a harmful thing, and we'll give you guys some different views on this tech, these technologies and get everyone to pass on the test, hopefully. Sweet action. Um, Joel Sprague is joining us. You can see his Twitter name at the bottom, JWS Consult. Follow him for cool things or uh, or don't. I apologize if you hear some noise in the background. I've got my, she's three weeks old today, uh, daughter in my lap. So I'll mute myself when I can, but just that's, if you hear weird noises, don't be alarmed. Um, just some quick housekeeping before we start. Uh, if we go to the next slide. So, of course, as always, get in on the conversation. Uh, I'll be watching the Twitter hashtag tonight, TheBrownBag, so you can tweet any questions, comments, concerns. I will interject and try to get those answered for you. Um, and, of course, our other um, handles from around the world. Um, the Brown Bag schedule you can see in the middle. I won't read that off to you. Uh, you can always see it on our website, the Brown Bag. And speaking of the website, if you have looked at it lately, you'll notice it has been redesigned. Something we're working on uh, a little bit and making a little more tweaks to. Um, maybe someday I'll eventually be listed in people that are part of the brown bag, but you know, that's cool. Um, so check it out and uh, let us know what you think. Um, again, our guest this evening for CCNA Data Center is Joel. I'm Anthony Hook. You'll follow me on Twitter if you care. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to you. Okay. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will give the same warning that she's not down yet, but my three-year-old may be joining us here too. So it'll be an interesting night. Oh, let me, let's see. Can you guys see my screen here at all? Yeah, I could, I can't, and now I can't again. 
Okay, so I expect most of you are here. We're probably here the first few sessions with Shane. Uh, like Shane, this is my first time doing this. I've shown up to a lot of the V Brown bags, but first time here in the driver's seat. Um, so a little nervous, but hopefully it'll go well. I actually had huge PowerPoint notes for every single slide written out and everything and realized I'd be putting you all through PowerPoint hell. So I deleted pretty much all my notes, just kept the graphics to work from and hopefully it'll make things a little more natural. It might be a little scattered, but I think we'll be able to get a good coverage of everything going on. Though hopefully I'll remember that if I click the mouse, it's going to advance the slide. Uh, so we are, as I mentioned, looking at 640-916, which is introducing data center technologies. Um, this is just a brief overview of most of the topics that you will see for this section in the test on the blueprint. Um, there's a few sections that I skipped on verifying, which I'm gonna try and do with a live demo here at the end during the initial setup. There's also, um, some, hopefully we'll get to some coverage of the MDS family. It's not listed on the blueprint, but as we know, the CCNA level tests are a lot of just rote memorization and the test writers, especially when they're directed to come up with a new version of the test to deal with dumpers, love those charts of, you know, cards, supervisors, what does what, which cards have how many ports at what speed and so on. So as much as we all hate it, you're gonna have to memorize those charts. And then at the end, we'll hopefully have a Q&A if anyone has any questions. If I do my job, hopefully there'll be no questions and we'll all be done for the night. Okay, so this of course is the official CERT guide. It is on the third printing. It is great. Every single one of those authors has two, I think anywhere from two to four or five CCIEs. These are the guys who work for Cisco, help design all this equipment. They know what they're doing. This is well worth reading, even if you're not taking the test. Um, get it at Amazon, Kindle, Safari, wherever you like. You guys know how to find books. This is uh, the breakdown of the test. Again, Shane's gone over it, so I won't get into it too much. Um, one thing to know as you get into the higher level tests is this data center network services kind of disappears. Um, the ACE load balancers are still on the blueprints, but they aren't really in the higher level tests or labs, but you still need to know a little bit. Today though, we are going to concentrate on this green section, storage networking, which is why I got picked to do today as a systems and storage guy rather than a network guide teaching. Uh, here's a few other links. Um, I know the CCNA, it's, it, there's, as far as I remember, as of two years ago, there's nothing hands-on in the test. But if you're like me, the only way you're really going to understand and really commit these things to memory is if you do them. Um, luckily, if you work for a Cisco partner, they have multiple ways of you getting in and not only just learning, reading, but actually doing things hands-on here. So there's actually three main sites you can go to for hands-on labs as a Cisco partner. My favorite are the Partner Education Connection. 
Um, they have, for pretty much every track, there are labs, the security and service providers. You see it's actually a full curriculum written as prep for the CCIE, which is more than you need to know, but if you can get through these labs, even working along with the study guides, you're gonna know everything you need to know about those tracks. It's the same thing here. We have our data center virtualization, which is what we're looking at. So you click in here and you will have access to not simulators, but actual live hardware, you know, uh, Cisco data center rack costs just shy of a million dollars list price. As working for a Cisco partner, you have access to all of that equipment here for free. Just have to fight with the scheduling to share it with everyone else. And they have really good um, labs written up, which you'll see that I'll walk you through full configs, the base ideas that things are based, you know, that they're working off of to help you understand zoning, network switching, whatever you're working on. Uh, we'll get back to that later. I'm going to actually use one of these labs for the hands-on demo towards the end tonight. Again, same idea, dCloud. Um, PEC is targeted at training partners. So this is so you can know what you need to do before you talk to a client or do your job. dCloud is targeted more at doing demos for potential or current clients. But again, there's still all kinds of Nexus labs and they have changed the site since I was last in here. Sorry about that. Here we go. Data so center what happens if what happens yeah. if you're not a partner? You said you can get some some racks based actual equipment if you're a partner. You just have to schedule it. Can you do that, or what are your options if you're not a partner? Your main options then are spending money, and the best place to do that has sadly gone out of business just recently. Um, some of the D cloud, including their the ACI lab, which I believe is this one, which we're all trying to learn with the new versions of the tests. Um, Robert Burns at Cisco is actually trying to make available to everyone um, rather than requiring gold partner status. Um, outside of that though, there are certain things which I should have added here. Um, for UCS practice, that's actually the best situation. They ha Cisco has a UCS platform emulator, which is a small virtual machine that you load up and you can basically do about 90% of what you need to do learn playing with Cisco, probably 100% in CCNA. It does 90% even up through the CCIE level. And obviously it doesn't, have any actual hardware so you can't boot up the servers but you can practice all of your configuration creating templates everything you'll need which is what i'll be talking about next week so i can actually have that in my powerpoint uh, but then other than that you're basically looking at your regular commercial rack vendors um, which are never cheap but to especially as you move if you want to move past the CCNA level and if your work doesn't have things around, you have to spend something. Um, that being said, a lot of this gear is 
not necessarily end of life, but is at the four to six year mark. So you'll see a lot of corporations are replacing equipment and stuff is available relatively cheap on eBay. I would highly recommend if you have a friendly boss, either convince them for rack time or if you have a very friendly boss, a little budget and a spare rack, see if you can pick up some of the older hardware, the Nexus 5, the 5020s, the Gen 1 or Gen 2 UCS blades and get them set up in a rack and set up a test lab for you to play with. Um, there's nothing's ever going to replace hands-on work, whether it's CCNA or CCIE. I was have been lucky enough. I actually got started on this whole track. I had one expired Cisco certification from years ago and got started on the data center track because we have been uh, using UCS servers, the blade servers at my day job for I think coming up on six years now. Um, and I was in charge of the storage too, so it just made sense if for me to start on this track and because it fulfilled some of our partner requirements, I was able to get work to pay for all the testing and training, which never hurts. Okay, so that is uh, um, we had one other question on that. Is yeah. is viral of any use for for the data center stuff? It is. Um viral and GNS with the NX or the NXOS module, it'll do about forty to fifty percent. Um it's missing the most of the layer two functions. Uh it'll definitely get you in, get you familiar with NXOS, let you practice some of the stuff, but a lot of the layer two functions will not work. Uh, in addition, if you just are looking for exposure to NXOS, you will see, I'm a huge believer in VMware um, as a system storage guy, but also because there's so much stuff now that vendors make available either as a VM completely or at least emulator so you can with a very small uh, server practice things. So you will see here I have the UCS platform emulator, the NetApp emulator, the F5 Big IP emulator, EMC emulator, here we go, the Nexus 1000V. That's the Nexus 1000V, which we're gonna go over next week, is the virtual switch uh, that lets you do basically a software-based switch for your VMware or Hyper-V environments, and that, again, runs the same NXOS as the physical switches, so lets you practice setting up, you know, all your regular VLANs, port channels, stuff like that, as well as the port groups and everything that are involved with the integration between the Nexus and your VMware hosts. Okay, so let's get to storage. Um, basically, in the, wor the world we're used to, there's three types of storage. You have your direct attached storage that is whether that's, you know, the hard drive in your laptop, RAID card and hard drives in a server. It's very simply, you know, the controller, the disks, the cable, it's all within the server itself or the laptop itself. It goes a little bit further. You can have external SAS arrays, but still it's generally connected to a single server. Occasionally you'll have it connected to two, but most of the time even with then, 
most of the external disk packs that connect to two servers, they split up the disks. You'll get seven disks on one server, seven disks on the other port. It's simple as that. Moving past your direct attached storage, you start to get to your network attached storage. I think everyone in here has probably used it. They've never thought about it. Anytime you're mapping a network drive to a file server, whether it's a SIF server, NFS, whatever that is, this is network attached storage. It can be a Windows file server, it can be a Synology NAS with a SIFS, with a SIFS program running, it can be a Linux server. Anything you're mapping a network drive to from your workstation is network attached storage. And then finally, and what we're really looking at for this test is storage area networking. With this, it's similar to NAS. You're still using servers that are connected to storage over a network, but it is generally not going to, well, it's about 50-50 these days. It'll be either an Ethernet network running FCOE or iSCSI, or it'll be a dedicated fiber channel network, which is a fiber channel is networking dedicated to storage. So it's specifically you know, your regular TCP IP network, you have drops, you have, you know, you have to act, pack it, react it, you know, resend if need be, if it's corrupted. Storage doesn't like that. A server, if you have storage, if it's, you know, boot disks or database storage, it wants that data to always be there, get there in order, have no corruption, have no drops. Fiber channels designed around this. Um, iSCSI is used often these days. Um, it's cheaper. It, use, it can use your existing network, so it lets you do smaller scale implementations. You don't need dedicated fiber channel switches. But if you talk to an old storage guy, he'll t you know, basically call it, call it kid stuff and say to get fiber channel if you aren't real storage. I don't know that that's the case anymore. You get a nice uh, hybrid setup or a pure flash setup running 10 or 40 gig ethernet and it'll blow any of those old fiber channel arrays out of the water, but you can't convince an old storage guy of that. So here we have a chart of, as an aside, most of these, like this graphic is straight out of the official certification guide. Nothing too surprising. Not all my images will be, I tried to, get some things. I like to teach by analogy, so there are gonna be some that aren't out of the certification guide. You'll be able to tell when that happens and hopefully they'll help explain the ideas a bit better. So here we have, you know, most of these things we've already talked about. So file level storage, that's anything you're mapping a network drive to. So that can either be SIFs, NFS, it can be a dedicated appliance, like a Synology. It can be something like an EMC Solera, which takes block level storage from your backend SAN and basically acts as a SIF server to allow Windows clients or an NFS server to allow Unix clients to write to it without having to format it and create their own file systems on there. iSCSI, SAN, direct attached, these are all block level storage. What that means is there's no file system, it's just raw storage that the server that's 
that's raw storage that's being presented to a server that the server can do with what it wants. It's going to have to format it. It's going to have to put a file system on it. But then it can boot from the storage. The storage, with a SAN at least, can be presented to multiple hosts, which lets you do things like SQL clusters that share a CSV volume. And of course, the most common uh, virtualization cluster that has shared storage. So if one host goes down, that VM is not going to go down with it. Any VMs on that shared storage can be brought right back up on another host. And it lets you just keep running along as pretty as can be. Um, this I just threw in there. I couldn't find a better place for it. This is one of our dreaded charts. You know, SCSI, fast SCSI, ultra SCSI, you don't see these anymore. Um, I think Dell shipped their last SCSI server was, might not even have been the 2950. It was probably the 2850s about eight years ago. But you're looking at one of these charts where this is the things they love to test on. So I like to try and group these to memorize these numbers, try and find where things are grouped that you can put together. So anything that just starts SCSI, you have a six meter cable length. If it starts just fast or wide there, you have three meters. Just plain ultra, one and a half, ultra two or three, 12. You know, stuff like that. Everyone is gonna have a different way of doing it. You have to figure out what works for you to let you memorize it, but for better or worse, these charts are things we've got to memorize. You'll never, you know, unless you're old like some of us, you've probably never seen any of these, but memorize your numbers. Or don't and just hope that you know enough of everything else so you can pass the test. Okay, I decided to follow on with Shane here and get at least a few practice questions in. So our first practice question is, which of the following options describes advantages of storage area networks? I'll give you guys a minute and then we'll go over that. The answer to this would be A, B, and C. SAN, because the disks aren't just stored in the servers themselves, they have a lot of advantages. Um, not all of them are directly related to SANs, but they're things we've come to expect on SANs anyway. The consolidation is kind of a given. You know, you have all these spindles that instead of just having three in every single server in the rack, you have them all in one place. It lets you put a, put a whole lot of spindles and a small footprint. I think my latest NetApp trays are something like 48 spindles and four rack units. Um, and they also then, of course, let you get better performance out of it. Instead of striping your data across five or six disks, you're, you can stripe it across 30, 60, 90, you know, it just scales up. Storage virtualization, we're not gonna cover that really today. It's not on the blueprint. It is in the official certification guide. It has a whole section, read it. The stuff is in the test. Um, I was just running out of room. As you see, we're already 20 minutes in and we're on only a third of the way, oh, a third of the way through the slides. I guess that does work. <laughs> but this is just the abstraction layers. You have, you know, 15 disks in a RAID group. You abstract that to an aggregate that has 
instead of 15 terabytes, it's 13 terabytes of disk because two are used for parity. Then there's another layer of storage virtualization and abstraction and that aggregate might be split into five volumes presented to five different servers. And then within those volumes, you can abstract and virtualize again and say put two or three LUNs in each one of those volumes. It's similar to what you're doing, taking your two CPUs and 256 gigs and a VMware host and presenting it out as virtual hardware to 30 virtual machines just with storage instead. And then business continuity. You have all these disks, the SANs give you, you generally, you have more spindles so you can have more parity disks, you can have more spares, you can do replication uh, between arrays, you have deduplication and uh, compression which allow you to get more use out of your disks. It just lets you, be, just basically gives you a whole lot more safety, a whole lot more ability to replicate to other sites, just trying to take out any single point of failure, which is something you will hear from every storage engineer ever. Multiple controllers, multiple ports on every controller, multiple storage fabrics. Storage guys do not like single points of failure. So now we're gonna look at SAN connectivity. This little chart here is just trying to show you that whether you're talking SCSI, iSCSI, fiber channel, oops, FCIP, fiber channel over ethernet, fiber channel. These are all just methods of getting SCSI commands from your host to the disks over a physical wire. So SCSI, it's simple. It's SCSI commands directly, you know, the controller's directly connected to the disks. Nothing too complicated. Fiber channel, well, let's go back over here. iSCSI, you're taking those SCSI reads, writes, you're putting them up just on your regular TCP IP network. This is why iSCSI, one of the big reasons why you always want to run MPIO or multipathing on iSCSI in particular, but in storage in general. Because, you know, we all know TCP IP over ethernet, it's lossy, there's restarts, you mess with MTUs, fragment your packets, it's, it's an ugly standard, but it's also just resilient, so we use it for everything. And iSCSI has made use of that and just tried to make it work well with storage. Fiber channel, this is the old school storage protocol. There's not a whole lot to the stack, but it's written to make sure that your data is always there, it's always accessible, it, that doesn't get lost. If your boot volume is trying to boot up and you lose three out of 17 packets, your server's gonna crash. So that's what Fiber Channel has been written from the ground up to do. There's um, you'll see in the next uh, slide, it uses 8B, 10B encoding to have extra bits for parity. It uses buffer to buffer credits. Um, iSCSI, you throw packets out there. It's TCP, so you look for an ACK, but you basically throw packets out there. As long as they get ACK, you just keep going. If they don't, you resend them. FC, Fiber Channel doesn't work that way. Fiber Channel the receiver actually says first, I'm available, I'm ready, I can take six packet or six blocks. 
six frames. Sorry. So then the sender will send six frames and will not send anything else until the receiver says, okay, I've processed those, I'm ready for six more or four more. That way you're not losing things to, you know, things getting lost in buffers that are full, anything like that. FCOE and FCIP, you're basically taking your fiber channel and either at layer two, FCOE, it uses, um, you know, your typical MAC address, everything you'd think of on Ethernet, or layer three, FCIP, which goes over IP, TCP IP, and then still is just packaging up these fiber channel frames. These are, again, fiber channel on its own requires a dedicated fiber channel switch or a unified fabric. It can be expensive. FCOE requires an FCOE-capable switch. It's not going to work on every switch, but it works on more than just the FC. It lets you, and it lets you share the traffic. Uh, an FCOE connection will generally be a um, VLAN trunk that has one VLAN for data, one VLAN for regular network data, and one VLAN for storage traffic. Uh, so it lets you save a lot on just not just switches, but cabling your plant costs. FCIP is mostly used for extension between data centers or pods. Um, it's taking those fiber channel packets, throwing them over a layer three network and letting you get further out with it. It's not particularly efficient. It's nothing you're gonna wanna boot over, use for high throughput traffic, but it works. Another, just one of our wonderful um, charts here. Fiber channel, one, two, four, eight, 1632 memorize I don't remember at all what I would what I saw but I would guess if you wanted to know memorize your speed make sure you know 810b encoding and have some idea of how to convert from GB to MB if they do ask you one of these they're probably going to give you one or the other column know that it's, you know, do the math with eight. It's, this is pretty basic networking. You should know this by now. Fiber channel has its own kind of topologies. Um, if you've done route switch, particularly the older tracks, some of these will look familiar. Um, this looks a whole lot like a, the first is point to point your server's plugged into storage. Anyone can think of that. Fiber channel arbitrated loop. Uh, if you've ever done 10 base two or FDDI or even study them, it's a very simple, very similar idea. You have a single loop, only one device at a time accesses it. It only goes one way. Uh, fiber channel hubs are actually still a fiber channel loop. I think Shane went over this already, but basically, you have a loop that goes up, down, up, down, up, down. And then a switch fabric, it's basically what you're used to with um, Ethernet, fiber channel storage does, we do the same core edge core designs or collapse core designs because despite the different protocol, the various, the math of what makes for a redundant network, you know, if this dies, say, you know, you lose this link or this link, it's 
the same thing for redundancy with fiber channel as with uh, Ethernet. Uh, so we, had what, a, we had a question quick. Yeah. If, if you can go back to that previous slide. This one? And on the right, you've, or, yeah, yeah. On the, on the right side, fiber channel switch fabric topology. What is a good, is there a good number or a maximum number of hops that you want to try to get or try to stay under for, for fiber channel frames? There is. Um, it's not actually a per frame. What you're looking at is, um, which we'll cover here. Well, let me hop ahead to this next one and it'll, I'll be able to explain it to the answer to that question. Uh, so we're going to look at this. There's two addressing, two bits of addressing for fiber channel. You have your worldwide port and names, which think of this like your MAC address for Ethernet. Every device is going to have a node worldwide name, which is unique to that node. And then each port on the controllers has their own port worldwide name. So it's simple. Think of it as your MAC address. This is actual hardware address burned into the HBAs or in UCS, the address that is pulled from a pool and assigned to it. But for the actual passing of traffic, Fiber Channel uses domain IDs. And this is where we're gonna answer that question. Each switch, a domain ID has 24 bits. And the first, or an FCID, sorry, I answered it there myself. An FCID has 24 bits and the first state bits are the domain ID, which each switch has its own domain ID. So when you're looking at fabric, the size of your fabric, it's not the amount of hops. Um, fiber channel limitations tend to be the amount of domain IDs on your network. How many that can be is gonna vary by the vendor and model. I think with the MDSs and the Nexus 5000, Cisco suggests no more than 83 uh, devices on a particular vSAN. Um, and then once the other consideration is gonna be, which I know Shane went over, is the, the fan out and the oversubscription, which again, it depends on the workload and on the vendor's standards, but what it is, you're doing the math of how many hosts down here are connecting to each port on the SAN on the other end or vice versa. How many, you know, particularly the UCS, how many blades are connecting out through say two or four fiber channel uplinks from the fabric interconnects down here. And the numbers on there, it, depends a lot on the workload and on the, not just the switch vendors, but the SAN vendors, how many uh, connections they recommend through them. Obviously, if you're doing giant OLAP transforms in SQL, you're gonna want a lot smaller fan out than if you're doing you know, VMware View or something. You know, desktops for regular office users are gonna have a whole lot less load on the fiber channel ports than big database servers. Um, and every vendor, every switch vendor, every, especially every storage vendor will be happy to sell you uh, an application and consulting services to help make sure your storage is properly tuned for your needs.
Um, this is just going over the different types of um, fiber channel ports. Fiber channel ports tend to be a software entity, so the physical port is always going to be a two, four, eight gig fiber channel port. What you're configuring is the type of port based on the type of traffic or connectivity it's going to be. So F ports, fabric ports, are always used to connect hosts, uh, which are either N or NPV ports, which we're going to discuss next time. But basically, if you remember from your biology class, um, DNA coding, there, certain ports always go together, just like your pairs and DNA. So F is always going to go with an N. E always goes with another E. These are the expansion ports that you use to connect two switches together. TE, still an expansion port, but it's for, um, it's a trunking expansion port. So if you have multiple vSANs on your switch, which we're going to discuss further on, um, the trunking expansion port lets you run more than one vSAN over that link. FL, again, it's connecting to end nodes, but they're a fiber channel arbitrated loop. So the L on the end is pretty simple. There's a few other ones. Um, you'll actually see V, VF, VE, um, and technically TVE or VTE a lot. Um, once you start getting into FCOE, that the V there is just virtual. They're still, a VE is still just a connection between switches. VF is still a connection to a host, nothing too complicated. You, the V is just telling you it's an FCOE port. Okay, we are back to another practice question. Which type of port is used to create an inner switch link on a fiber channel switch? I can give you guys a second to look through your eight or two six hole letters there to choose from. Um, the answer as we discussed is the E port, the expansion port, nothing complex, but make sure you know them. They're going to, you know, that's something you'll get questions on. Next up is initiator target. Uh, you, you'll see these terms a lot and with uh, storage area networking. The simplest way to think about it, think of a pitcher and a catcher. The pitcher is the initiator. This is your server. Anytime there is a storage request, storage, it, you know, it's looking for some kind of data, your server, the initiator is going to initiate the request, throw the pitch down. This is your SAN or the target. Catcher takes the request, looks at it, sends it back to the pitcher. So your server, the initiator, asks for data. The target here takes that request, processes it, sends it on back. I, a lot of guys I see getting confused at that, but it's really, don't overthink it. It's, you know, even just look at the words themselves, initiator target. Initiator starts it, target is what they're sending that request to. Um, this is the picture from the book on initiator target. Shows a little, you know, you have your server, your storage. I put it in here because of this. I mentioned before the no single point of failure for storage. Most storage, you know, 
with an Ethernet fabric, you put your redundancy by having multiple cores, multiple aggregation switches, but all connected together. Storage guys don't like that. They want to be able to say, upgrade their OS on their whole Fabric A switch infrastructure and not have it affect B at all. So it's, they can do this without, you know, I can take all of Fabric A down, do rewiring, upgrades, whatever. The service can keep communicating over Fabric B. They can keep running, processing requests. Nothing happens with it. That's, and you'll see that with everything. Every controller head on your storage array is going to have a connection to both. So if you need to pull a controller head out, replace it, it's still, the other head is still going to have connection to A and B. It's still going to keep processing things. I didn't give you guys a question on that one. I, I think it's pretty simple. So describe, configure, and verify zoning. Everyone's watched some stupid school movie, seen the lunchroom where, you know, the tables are all split up by different groups. The students only talk to the other kids at that table, not to anyone else. That's zoning. You have, say this here. You didn't, you didn't hear me over here. I had my microphone muted, but I'm, I'm laughing. I wanted you to know that I, I had to unmute my microphone to tell you that I'm laughing over here. I'm happy to hear it. It's, I get laughs of that, but every time they see it, it's, I don't know, people seem to say, you know, look at this and like, oh, so you have here, you know, the, your school classroom, you have your 100% zoned out, say that's your VMware host. Fat kids with awesome dessert, that's the storage. Those are just the disks with all your virtual machines. So the SQL servers over here, the Windows servers over here, none of them have any access. These VM disks are only communicating with the VMware hosts or the fat kids are talking to the zoned out kids. Yeah. You can see this again here. This is the more official uh, picture of it. IBM is, IBM wrote probably 90% of the standards that we use these days in storage networking. So, You'll see they have a big red book on storage networking. They have all the diagrams. It's, you'll see IBM stuff in any discussion ever on storage networking. So I grabbed theirs for zoning. Say we have VMware host one, VMware host two. These ovals here are a zone. When you're doing zoning, best practice, well, Technically, it depends on who you ask. Best practice, most people will say at a minimum, you only want one initiator in each zone or at a maximum. This is because, as we said, the initiators are the pitchers. So they're the ones who are going to start any conversation. And you don't want two hosts or even two connectors in the same host talking to each other. You want them just talking to their storage and then back to the host. You'll hear argument, and I've actually seen even just different, depending on which Cisco employee wrote it, whether you can should do one initiator, one target, and that's it in the zone, or whether you can do one initiator, multiple targets. I'm lazy. I don't like writing, you know, with my infrastructure, I would have something like four, probably five, 600 zones if I did a separate one for each so I do it by host one, HBA one, 
that's the initiator, and here's all your targets. It's, you know, there's only so much. My targets don't communicate to each other. Most of the time, there are two controllers on the same SAN. If they can't communicate, first of all, they won't communicate with each other, but if you're worried about it, you probably need to find a new SAN vendor because if your two controllers can't, are a security risk talking to each other, you have bigger issues. So whether you go with the fat kids or the official drawing, zoning, if you're teaching this as a network guy, they'll tell you it's like ACLs. I like my cafeteria drawing better. Either way though, what it is is you're basically defining who can talk to who. Describe, configure, and verify vSAN. So we are getting through this, which is good because it looks like we got about 14 minutes left here. Uh, I probably will run a little long. I'll try not to run too long here, either for the people here live or the people here who watch it after. I know we don't want to run, spend too much time on this. So your vSANs are like somewhere between your VLAN and your VRF. Um, technically, Fiber Channel does do FSPF routing um, for the traffic. So some people will argue that a vSAN is more like a VRF than a VLAN. I think that overcomplicates it in general, other than some special cases where you're steering traffic. You don't do a lot with Fiber Channel routing. FSPF is resilient. It uses the same Dijkstra algorithm or algorithm we're used to, it's generally best to leave it alone. So I tend to associate vSANs with VLANs. You have, you know, vSAN 1, these hosts, this storage, vSAN 3, this host, this storage, the two don't talk most of the time. Um, this diagram is actually showing that in general, a zone is top, no, a zone is always tied to just one vSAN. I'll take that back. Um, what we'll see here is that with the Cisco MDS switches, they actually will do inter-vSAN routing, where what you are getting here is, it doesn't show it, but you'll have vSAN 2, vSAN 3, say these two, say one host in here needs to talk to this disk here, but you need the, that disk in vSAN 2 for these hosts. You can actually set up, what InterVSAN routing does is set up a third vSAN that translates and lets this traffic pass between these two so that you can have this host access this disk here. It's not a very common use case. Um, it is supported on the MDSs. It is not supported on the Nexus switches. Uh, you'll see that for a lot of the stuff that is getting phased out that isn't used as often, they have not bothered implementing it in the Nexus, either due to silicon issues or just because there's not enough uh, need for it out there. Does that, uh, on the Nexus, does the InterVSAN routing require additional enterprise licensing as well? InterVSAN routing does require I don't remember if it's the enterprise package or which package it is, but it does require um, an additional license, I believe, but it's only on the MDS. The Nexus 5000 does not support it at all, actually. I may be able to tell you a second because this lab 
includes IBRR. Oh, geez. Let's see, SAN extension over IP. I think it's actually the mainframe package. I can't swear to that. I was hoping it would be something with an obvious name, but of course it is not. But yeah, and then we had we had we had yep. one other question. Sorry, I'm not like I said, I'm not trying to steamroll. Yeah, um, somebody asked a question about the differences between hard zoning and soft zoning, and what's recommended these days or what the actual difference is for somebody that doesn't know. Oh. I'm gonna say refer to the book on that. It's, I don't think it's on the test and I have gotten very different answers as to which is which depending on if you ask Brocade or Cisco. I can tell you Cisco devices use all hard zoning. They actually um, program the silicon or it's the ASICs with the zones when you configure them so that the only the ports or the ports that have devices that are zoned together can talk to each other. Soft zoning as to what that is, what the difference is between the two. Yeah, I'm gonna say look at the thing because I don't remember which is the brocade answer and which is a Cisco answer and I don't wanna steer you wrong. Um, I I'm going to answer, I'm going to yeah. throw that out on Twitter and see if anybody jumps in to see, you know, if anybody has ideas or whatever. So we can come, that's a great question. We'll come either come back to that or look for it in the book. Um, you know, Graham, let us know if you find anything, what you find out. Yeah. Or, um, you know, my Twitter was at the start. My email is going to be at the end. Hit me up. I'll get you the answer for it. I just would have to dig it up again. Um, I don't want to give it to you wrong. Just in, I, I don't think it's on any of these tests, but just in case it is, I definitely don't want to steer you wrong in that case. Okay, so we are, I'm gonna quickly move on from the question I wasn't able to answer and give us a question I can answer. Uh, we are back to, I think this might be our last practice question here, which is which of the following options are correct for vSANs? And we'll give you a minute here to read through them all. These are a little bit longer than our last one. Okay, the answer to this is A and C. I hope nobody said A and B because if so, you aren't reading the questions because it can't be only a single and multiple vSANs. Um, so each HBA device can only belong to a single vSAN. As we mentioned, it can participate in traffic with other vSANs if you have an enable inter-vSAN routing. Um, the four was a kind of a trick question or a trick answer. So don't fall for it. Yes, you can number your vSANs anything from two to 4093. No, you can't have that many. 
uh, you're limited to 256 vSANs. It's actually operationally, it'll often be less depending on the particular capabilities of the switches you're using. Um, so that, okay, initial setup. Actually, because I am running close, I want to throw out one more thing there. The certification guide is great, read it. The labs are gonna help you. Um, I will say though, for additional training material, what I used primarily other than the certification guide and just practicing was um, Anthony Sequeira's videos from CBT Nuggets. Uh, for my personal learning, they were great. I like him a lot. He's a nice guy if you interact with him on Twitter. Um, I do recommend, and I do the, try and do this for all my tests, do the videos for whatever test you're working on and the level above if you can. So I went through all of the CCNA and CCMP videos before I sat my first CCNA test. It may be overkill, but it saves you wasting 250 bucks on a failed test. Um, so, and I get nothing for that plug. He just, those videos work great for me. I highly recommend them. So now we're gonna do the initial setup on a switch, which may be one of the last things we have time for here. When we're doing the live demo. And I don't have quite a hard stop at, uh, at uh, you know, in five minutes here. So if you go a little bit longer, I'm okay with that. Okay. Um, so, you know, just so you know. It's, I'm trying not to run too long. Um, I have a wonderful lab who feels that I need to be up at four o'clock every morning. And lately my three-year-old has thought basically the same thing. So I normally would have been upstairs an hour ago to start winding down. So I don't want to run too long for myself either, but I'm definitely not going to cut off here to at least let you guys see some of uh, live MDS switch here. This one is actually going to be, uh, this is one of the Cisco PEC labs here, the global online lab delivery labs, as they call it. Um, so you get an idea of the, you're gonna have the worksheet I showed you before, which is, you know, it tells you how to access things, walks you through, it actually will walk you through every single task, showing you exactly what to put in, what to do. Or you can just read the first description and, you know, if you know, do the initial setup. Well, the initial setup with an MDS is pretty basic. They've already given you the IPs, vSANs, everything you need. So you could do this task either following along or you could just do it from scratch. If you know what you're doing, you're just practicing. I know what I'm doing, but I don't necessarily remember all the ports I have configured on this topology. So I might cheat and look at this on the other screen. Um, so the initial setup, this window I have open is this MDS 9148, 48 ports, one rack U, I believe two gig ethernets for FCIP, just a nice little switch. I'm going to say it's four gig, but I won't swear to that until we get through it. Uh, if you've set up a Nexus device before, this is gonna look very familiar for a lot of this. Uh, uh, 
So yeah, you know, this basic configuration dialog is going to look a lot like any other Nexus. We don't want another login account. We don't use SNMP. You know, obviously there's things you are going to do if you're doing this for real, but you're not going to do in a lab. Always want to configure your management interface, otherwise how are you going to use it? Um, one thing you'll notice, while Nexus, NXOS is based on ScreenOS, started on these devices, there's a lot of things that have been added on the Ethernet switches that still aren't in place on the um, fiber channel switches, and one of them is going to be that for Ethernet interfaces, you still have to configure your full net mask. You can't use just a slash, you can't just say, you know, 10.2.8.53 slash 24. You're going to have to type it out. So. Advanced IP options, you're rarely going to look in, and I couldn't even tell you what most of them are. No. Okay, so IP routing, static route. <laughs> this is, you're very likely never going to use the advanced IP switches or the advanced IP options on your switch. But then you get into the same stuff that you'd set up on a Nexus. You're going to set up SSH. Nobody should be using Telnet. The MDS does default to the HTTP server. I've never used it. It can be useful. Clock time zone. So, so far, all of that's the same stuff you see in setup on a Nexus switch. Now you're going to get into some of the things that are just configured on the fiber channel switches. The default switch port, shut. Um, a lot of configurations, especially with port channels on fiber channel, you want the port to start off shut down first. You want to configure both ends and then bring them up. Obviously, a lot of people tell you to do the same thing in Ethernet, but most Ethernet switches, LACP will still, you know, detect the other ports. It'll bring the port channel up and do things cleanly. Fiber channel has the port control protocol. It's, in theory, it's similar to LACP. It doesn't work as well. You want, you definitely want your ports defaulted to shut down for things like port channels or they're not going to come up to start. You're going to have to shut them down, redo it, you know, bring it back up, make sure the config matches on both ends, and then bring it up. Default trunk mode. Trunk port mode. This defaults to on. Um, it has some relevance as to how you configure the switches. If you're running all Cisco switches, it should never be a problem. If you're interoperating with other vendors, you may want to set the default trunk mode to off and only turn it on for switches when ports that are connected to other Cisco fiber channel switches. Some vendors support it, at least in theory. Even switches that support it, I haven't always had it work. I tend not to trunk um, between vendors. If they do support vSANs and I have them configured on both sides, I will run a separate link for each vSAN. It's just, I, you know, I've been doing this for years. I've never had good luck with it. Um, if you're running all Cisco, don't worry about it. Leave it on. Be happy. Default switch port mode is F. If this is going to be connected primarily just all to NHOS, if this is your tap switch, go for it. You're, you know, you're going to 
configure 4748 as your uplink, have everything else set to switch port mode F to connect to NHOST. It saves you one step on every port config. It's not a huge concern because you're gonna get in the habit of when you configure the ports and configure them for the vSANs, you're gonna configure the switch port mode anyway and probably the speed. So it can be useful, it's not a huge thing. The default zone policy, permit versus deny. Uh, this one's pretty important. Um, most switches, most any modern switch is gonna default to a deny. This is just like your ACLs, your deny any any at the, as the last line, the implicit deny. That's what this is. If you change it to permit, if even if you don't have devices zoned together, if you leave it on default permit, they're still gonna be able to talk. Then you're just relying on LUN masking or the configuration on your storage arrays to make sure that only the storage that belongs to a host is presented to it. Not a concern if you have your array set, if your storage guy has your array set up correctly, but it can be bad if you have hosts writing, trying to write to disks that they don't own. So leave it on deny. Uh, enable full zone set distribution is set, it goes together with this, setting the default zoning mode, which I had meant to go over, but ran out of time. I might actually slip a bit about that into next week's. Um, basically there is basic and enhanced zoning. They both work. Um, they give you control of different alias types which let you use more user-friendly names and shorter names when you're configuring your zoning so you don't have to work with the longer F, the more esoteric SCIDs or the longer miserable PWWNs. Um, I don't think you'll need to know much about that on the test. You need to know that you'll probably need to know there's two different kinds. I don't think you're going to need to know anything deeper than that. Um, take a look at the book though. You might need just to know the difference between an FC alias and a device alias. And then that's it. It shows you your whole config here, what's being configured. Um, we stuck mostly with the faults, so things are just going to be left alone. And you write the configuration and save it. Um, the only thing I, else I was going to show is just a few of the verify commands. Um, obviously, Anytime you're working with a Cisco device, there's certain things that you're gonna have to get used to looking at to verify that things are configured correctly. The, you know, things like show comp, you know, show, geez, it's been a while since I've been in, show run. Uh, you know, look at your config. It's the same thing with a fiber channel switch as with an ethernet switch. You're just looking, make sure you haven't made any mistakes. I believe you can use your regular show run, include or begin with the fiber channel switches that you can with the Nexus. Let's see. Yeah, so those commands are all the same. Um, what you're gonna start to look for though are things that are more specific to fiber channel versus um, your ethernet. So show went brief, your regular thing you're used to here. But here on the fiber channel switches, you have a few more columns that you may not be used to. So you have your vSAN, 
every just like every Ethernet port has a default VLAN or a native VLAN, every um, fiber channel ports can have the native vSAN. Here, FX, um, we discussed before the E, F, NP, FL modes. FX is a mode that lets the port run as an F port or an FL port. It automatically detects if there's a loop device on there and will switch to run as FL. Trunk mode, as we discussed, is on. The status, this is going to look a lot like your Nexus. You know, you have your up, admin down, not connected, SFP absent. Um, these are different SFPs for fiber channel than for Ethernet. And it's not just the speed, it's because of that 8B, 10B encoding we discussed earlier. Um, here you see that the FX operates in F or FL. FL is generally going to be your storage arrays or if you get, have some really old stuff around and hook a fiber channel hub up to one of your switches, your speed, your port channel. You know, this, most of this looks just like your Nexus. Every time a fiber channel device connects to a switch, it does a fabric login. This is where if you're working on it, Ethernet switch, you might do a show IPR, show MAC address table. For a fiber channel switch, you're going to look at show floggy database. This is showing you your worldwide port names that we discussed, worldwide node names, the fiber channel ID. So this is, so vSAN, okay. Give me a sec. So on port, FC11, we see that it's in vSAN 57. We see the worldwide port name, worldwide no name. I can tell you right now if it's 2000, that's probably going to be a, an end host, a server. C5 or 50 to the start is generally going to be disk. Nothing you need to know. It can just make life easier tracking things down. You may notice, I, if you remember, I said each switch has a domain ID, which is the first eight bits of this FCID. You'll notice, though, that these are different. It's because of the vSAN. Each switch has a unique domain ID on each vSAN. So vSAN 57, the current domain ID for this switch is 37. vSAN 58, the current ID is 16. That's why there's different FCIDs, the, the different first eight bits on the show floggy database, despite it being from the same switch. There's also a show FCNS database. So Floggy is just the fabric login to devices that logged into this particular switch. FCNS is a fiber channel name server database, and that will give you the um, login of the fabric login of every device on that vSAN. But 
I did not finish the configuration on our other switch, so SCNS is still the same five devices as here. Uh, I think that's about it. There's, a, there's other verification, but it's you start to get into things we didn't we didn't set up. So we can do. You know, here, this is going to be pretty similar to your show int on an Ethernet switch. You do have a few other things, though. So your FCID, we still see the same FCID we saw up there. We get to see the port mode again, the port speed. Here are the B2B credits I talked about. So in general, you're going to have, for an F port, you're going to have more receive credits than transmit. B2B credits because generally you're receiving um, frames in from the host versus sending them out. You see your MTU, which is important if you're running FCIP. You're generally going to run your FCIP Ethernet ports at 2300 to have enough room for this MTU plus overhead. And I think that's about it. I feel like I'm just kind of rambling here and so let's see if there's anything left in the slideshow. The MDS family which I didn't populate and it's probably good because we don't have time. Um, that's about it. Uh, it's you know I hope you guys learned something. Feel free email me. Catch me on Twitter which was at JWS consult. Um, it's been a couple of years since I've been through this, but I use all this equipment every day. I, I'm happy to answer any questions. Obviously, all the V Brown Bag guys are great. So, you know, if you forget my name, email address, Twitter, anything about me, reach out to Anthony or Cody or Jonathan, and you know, the, they all know how to track me down. I'll be happy to answer any questions. Awesome. We appreciate it. We're getting some good feedback in the in the questions uh, section, thanking you and you know great info. So so I think it was well appreciated here with the people uh, live, and I'm sure people will appreciate it when this gets recorded. Um, I don't know if I mentioned it at the beginning. Of course, all of our stuff is recorded on you know YouTube. Um, we throw it up on our YouTube channel. We have it on our iTunes, so you can subscribe that way if you want to. Um, yeah, great info. If you have any questions or comments, toss them to me, toss them to Joel on Twitter, um, hit up the V Brown Bag hashtag. Uh, somebody will see it and should get back to you. Um, I don't have anything else on my end, so I can probably stop the recording. So anybody that's uh, watching, thanks for listening. And have a good evening.